This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. <laughs> you would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We're going over every single division. Here we're going to go over the NL East. Dave Jagler will join us from Nationals Radio, covers the Nats, obviously. Craig Mish from South Florida to talk about the fish. Anthony DeComo, who covers the Mets for MLB.com. Alex Coffey with the Philadelphia Inquirer talking the fighting fills. And the great Chip Carey from Braves Television. Jagler does a great job covering the Nats. What's it going to be like in our nation's capital? Dave, welcome to A's Cast Live. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? Uh, We are doing well. And just talking about the uh, business of baseball. And uh, for us as broadcasters, now that the CBA is over, whoever is making what, just thrilled that we're back having the game, and I know you guys are thrilled to get spring training going, and I'm assuming you're going to start games here in the next couple of days. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Nationals' first spring training game is Friday, uh, and uh, that'll be our first broadcast. So we are jumping right in. Normally we would have had a bunch of games under our belt by, by now, but uh, we're ready to go on, on Friday and uh, counting down until the season opener on April 7th. What are the Nats going to look like this year? Well, I mean, that's that's an evolving question. Uh, it certainly is a lot different looking team than the one that won the World Series in, in 2019. Uh, it's a team that had a, a major sell-off at the deadline last year and didn't do a whole lot in the free agent frenzy right before the lockout. Uh, but they've been fairly active since the uh, resumption of, of baseball activity, with the most notable move being the, the signing of Nelson Cruz to offer some protection in the lineup for Juan Soto, but it's a it's a much different looking team. They've now got to face Max Scherzer in their division a bunch of times. Uh, so there's some uh, question marks in the rotation, which has normally been the national strength. Uh, they're young in several positions, but they do have a superstar player in right field. So I think there's probably more moves that they're going to make. Uh, so it's hard to say exactly what the roster composition is going to be on April 7th, but it's right now a work in progress. Yeah, we talked to our old friend Chip Hale about um, the breakup of the ball club last year. Obviously, you know, the new head coach at Arizona, but we talked to him during that time. And, you know, looking at all those different guys that were terrific players on that championship club and meant a lot to the franchise and the D.C. area, just what was that like going through that? You know, we're going through it right now, but we didn't have a a World Series title team. Just what was that like going through that, seeing, you know, like a Max Scherzer all of a sudden wearing Dodger blue was like, am I really watching this? This is bizarre. Well, it was sad because really 
it's kind of, obviously COVID wrecks so many things, but you know, low down on the list, but pertinent to to folks around the Nationals is it, it really messed up what what should have been their victory lap. I mean, normally you win a championship and you know you have the the parade and they got all that. Well, the culmination of that is the next season when you raise the banner in front of a sold out crowd and get your World Series ranked. Well, they were denied that because obviously opening day was delayed the following year. And they raised the banner in July in front of basically uh, me and Charlie Slows, my radio part. We were like the only people in the ballpark outside of the Nationals and Yankees. So they that club never got its true victory lap. And they actually they, they tried to really keep the band together. The, the 2020 team, the way it was constructed, had a lot of the players re-signed from 2019. Uh, but unfortunately, they kind of went from veteran to old in that in that stretch. And so they retooled a little bit, you know, starting 2021. But uh, that team, after a, a very good month of June, faded in July. And then, obviously, it was the it was fire sale time. And as much as it was really uh, frustrating to see Max Scherzer traded away, he was in the final year of his contract. So there was no guarantee they were going to re-sign him. What really signaled the rebuild was when they traded Trey Turner, who had been a cornerstone player and an outstanding shortstop. And he still had a year and a half left on his contract. So that kind of signaled that it was definitely going to be a new era in, in national baseball. And so for the fans, it was kind of sad that, that that team never really got its salute. Although, with that being said, they are bringing a few members of that team back here in 2022. Sean Doolittle, uh, who went, who was obviously the key part of 2019, former Oakland Athletic, is back after uh, playing for Cincinnati and Seattle last year. And even Anibal Sanchez, who nearly threw a no-hitter in the NLCS in 2019, was out of baseball completely in 2021. He's in camp on a minor league invite. And Gerardo Parra, the, the author of The Baby Shark, which was the anthem of the 2019 team, is back again on a minor league invite. So uh, it seems like they're trying to bring some, some more guys back to, uh, to rekindle some championship memories. You know, it's always interesting when you look at contract negotiations and, you know, dealing with what we're dealing with in Oakland right now, you try and tell people, you know, there's ownership, there's players, there's agents. You know, Matt Olson could say whatever he wanted to say here. And when he's leaving here, oh, I love the organization, but I'm going back home. And in less than 24 hours, he signs an eight-year, $168 million deal. So obviously, there was a number, there was years that he knew he wanted. We just don't know the negotiation, how it's going. Juan Soto supposedly has been offered, and we're not sure what he's been offered, how many years, how much money. We're not sure if he's actually turned it down. But where are we with this superstar young talent and trying to keep him with that franchise long term? Well, we, we know what was reported. And like you say, I, I don't know if any of that is true. I haven't had a chance to, to speak to Juan Soto, not that he would tell me anyway, or, or Mike Rizzo, the Nationals GM. I'm sure that you know, that's something they want to keep you know, private in as much as it can be, although that is obviously out there now, what apparently was discussed. But as far as Soto, I mean, he is a – he is a cornerstone player in a building block. And so if you look at it from his perspective and you look at what contracts have been for that kind of player, you could understand him, uh, you know, a signing that contract or B waiting to see if he could, if he could set the bar even higher. He certainly has that right to do so and play three more years and test free agency. Now his public comments have been since he's arrived at spring training this year is that he sees himself as a national for the rest of his career. And from the organization side, uh, Mike Rizzo has said he is now the face of the franchise. 
with the retirement of Ryan Zimmerman in the offseason, he's the player that they want to build the next championship team around. So, I mean, uh, obviously what's being said is the right thing as far as him being a national for the long term. But as you say, ultimately, it's going to be the years and the dollars that determine if, if Soto ultimately uh, does stay a national. But with that being said, I think organizationally, uh, you know, they want to prove and build around Soto that they're going to be a contending team. The worst thing that could happen uh, is that, you know, if he, if he plays this out over the next three years, that this team is non-competitive for the next three years. And uh, is he going to look to want to sign a long-term contract if he doesn't feel he can win? He got a taste of winning very young in his career. His second big league season, he won a World Series. And Juan Soto is all about winning. So you can bet wherever he signs, and I hope it's in Washington, he wants to feel that he has the ability to compete for a championship and win every year. So organizationally, while they did you know, go into a rebuilding mode, in 2021, this has to be a rapid rebuild uh, to prove that they're a contending team and not to waste some of these prime years of Soto uh, on a club that's not a contender. That thoracic outlet uh, surgery is seriously scary when you hear about it. And Steven Strasburg, ever since the World Series, has had the issues of staying healthy. What are the expectations for him in 2022? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's really, if you had to say what's the one question, you know, what's the one question you'd love to answer going into this season, I mean, that's it. Because uh, he signed a seven-year contract after opting out and winning the World Series MVP, and year one and year two were both basically lost due to injury. Just a couple of starts in each year, 2020, he was impacted by the shutdown, uh, tried to come back quickly, and, uh, and had the carpal tunnel. And then last year, as you mentioned, the thoracic outlet, which – you know, organizationally, the Nationals have had really good success with rehabbing Tommy John uh, surgeries, but they've never had a pitcher uh, try to come back from thoracic outlet just in their organization. So in that sense, it's uncharted territory. Uh, the expectation is is that he's come into to spring training and, and threw to live hitters yesterday and, and seemed healthy. Now, he personally is, is taking this very slow. He, he was adamant about that. And I, I think you like it. Well, if Strasburg's healthy, he's going to be your opening day starter, right? Well, Strasburg kind of threw some cold water on that yesterday. He said that, you know, basically his routine is to take six weeks of spring training to get ready. Well, you don't have six weeks this year. You basically have between three and four. But uh, he's going to basically take this on a six-week kind of thing. So, uh, the odds are he's probably not going to be ready for opening day or certainly an opening day start. If he's in the rotation at all to start the year, they're, they're probably going to be really careful as far as monitoring innings because you're looking at a huge jump. He's pitched no more than 20 innings each of the last two years. You're not going to all of a sudden ask him to throw 200 innings after almost missing two full seasons. So they're going to be tremendously careful with him with the goal being that he can be effective but probably limited as far as the number of innings he can throw. And they certainly want to have him be healthy from opening day through the end of the season. Well, if you're Nelson Cruz and you're, you're during the lockout, you, you, you get the official word that every single team is going to have a DH, you're just licking your chops. You're thinking 30 teams now in play. I don't care if I'm 41. I still rake as good as anybody. He can kind of pick and choose – where he goes, I know he got $12 million with incentives to make it up to 16 He's got a relationship with Juan Soto. I, I could see him being a part of Soto's growth. But why do you think he really ultimately wanted to sign in D.C.? 
Well, clearly, and he, and he said that they, they indicated there was more to come. I think he wants to compete and, and, and contend. Right now, you might not see this roster in that mode, but obviously there were some assurances that more moves are going to be made, so that's one. But I, I think what you mentioned, I think the chance to, uh, to play with, with Juan Soto and to be a mentor to him probably appealed to, to Nelson Cruz at this stage of his career. I, I've got to say it seems somewhat surprising because, uh, again, the moves they had made – you know, prior to the lockout and post-lockout were a little more, you know, short-term, low-dollar, low-risk kind of moves. You know, this was a high-dollar move, albeit for, for one year plus an option. So, I mean, it's a move that signals this team is serious about contending in 2022. Now what are the moves to follow? That, that'll be the key question. Now, Washington is one of the great places to visit. Uh, absolutely love it. I mean, whether you're – you're going there to the Smithsonian's or you're able to go to the Capitol or you're able to, I recently did the tour right before COVID. We took the family to DC and we got to go into the white house. It's just absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you work in sports, you're, you're always around there or up in Baltimore. Uh, when I was working for the Raiders, I came down there to DC a couple times as we took on the Ravens. I just, I love DC, but what is it like? You know, it, it's not, it's different than, than a normal city when you're in the district and you're working for a professional sports team and you're a professional athlete there. What is that like? Well, it's a very transient city as, as you, you, you kind of alluded to yeah. because not many people are from there. I mean, most people, go to DC to work or they, you know, they, they live in the Northern Virginia or in the, you know, the Southern Maryland area and commute in. Uh, so oftentimes at nationals park, you see a large representation of, of visiting fans just because for what you say, well, Hey, my, my team's going to be in Washington. I can make it, a, I can make it a trip. I can go see my team and do the, all, all the other, you know, Washington type sightseeing activities. So, you know, yeah, when, when, when the Mets are in town or the Phillies or even teams, you know, from, from the West Coast, their fans generally will, will come in and represent very well. So it's a little bit of a different vibe in the ballpark. But, you know, I, I think it's fairly, uh, you know, comparable to other major league cities. There's a real strong core fan base here, even though the baseball history is somewhat, you know, checkered and, and interrupted. I mean, you looked at two different iterations of the Washington Senators leaving uh, first to become the Minnesota Twins and then the Texas Rangers. And then you had a, a, a 32, 33-year period with no Major League Baseball. So you had a generation plus of fans who probably were just Orioles fans or not fans of baseball at all. But yet since baseball has returned in 2005, they've developed a very strong following and just a, a core group. And it's not as large a core group as, as Red Sox or Yankees or Cardinals or or Dodgers, but it's a it's a very passionate group about this this organization. They were there when they lost 100 games, and, and that group was there celebrating the World Series title in in 2019. And they'll be here through as long as the rebuild takes, hopefully toward a new championship. So it's it's a very strong fan base and, and a fan base that that's growing considering how long baseball was away from DC. Well, I know a lot of schools do a great job getting kids. Uh, to DC, to DC, to teach them about our government and, and about the United States of America. But just as someone who is there uh, on a full time basis, you understand it's a place that every single American should go. It's just it, it's so amazing when you're there and you're in the history and going through all the Smithsonian's and everything and. And when you're able to go in and you're able to see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, 
I just it, it's such a special place. Every, I think you would agree. Every American should at least go there one time. Well, I do, and and the great part about it, a lot of what you talk about, it's free, is free. Yeah, you, you go in and you can walk in, and you, you know. If you only have an hour, you can go spend an hour in one of the Smithsonian Museums and walk out, and it's not like you plunk down $40 a head to do it. I mean, you a lot of that stuff you mentioned is free. Now, if you want to go to the Spy Museum, which is pretty cool, you got to pay for that one. But, you know, the Smithsonian's and some of the others are free. So it, it, it can be the best, uh, you know, low-cost vacation in that respect that you could have. Now, on a day off for you, what what would what, what would you do around DC on a day off where you go? You know what? I'm going to explore a little bit. Well, see, for me personally, I'm I'm a golfer, so I'm I'm playing uh, 18 holes at, at Congressional or wherever I can milk an invite. But uh, as far as that goes, I mean, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the the Air and Space Museum. That's my favorite Smithsonian. Yeah. So uh, I, I've gone there uh, a bunch of times with my kids. So even even being in the area, you know, sometimes you, it t- tends to be when you live in a place, you don't do as many of, of those things that are quote-unquote touristy, uh, but that's one that, the, that I go to a lot. And uh, another great thing about D.C. is it's fairly easy to get around uh, just with the, the metro system. I mean, you can you can metro right to Nationals Park. You can metro. There's a stop right by all the Smithsonian Museum. So uh, it's it's a fairly, uh, you know, not not it's not complex at all to get around the city. I want to say last U.S. Open at Congressional, didn't isn't that where Rory McIlroy won? Yeah, I forget what year that was. They actually they 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 shut down the they, they have two 18s there, the the blue and the gold, and they shut down the blue course because they renovated it. It's the the Ryder Cup is coming back there in like 2032. It's like a decade away, but they're they're already getting ready for it. So they they the course is going to be totally different. They're, they cut down a bunch of trees. You know, I haven't played it in a couple of years, but it's it's apparently going to be uh, quite quite the sight. Well, great stuff. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, enjoy the limited spring training, and good luck this season, and we'll check in later this year. Yeah, and actually the, the, the Oakland A's are going to be in Washington, D.C. for the first time since 2005. Is that hard to believe or what? The, 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 the A's have never played at Nationals Park. And that'll finally happen this year. Well, it'll be great to see. I mean, whenever we get to see ballparks, and, and that's where you tell fans. I mean, there there's certain places that when we're going east, when you talk about if you can do New York, you can do Boston, you can do Toronto, there's certain spots. D.C. is definitely a great trip because it's, it's like a great vacation mixed in with baseball. Absolutely. Pleasure, pleasure to be on with you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Not sure how good the Nats are going to be. Not not sure how good the Marlins are going to be. But Craig Miss breaks a lot of news. We always like having him on the program. He's from Marlin Swings and Mish's podcast. Craig, how are you in South Florida? I'm doing well. How are you? We we uh you know we're we're back in business. I think for all of us in baseball, we're uh, we're just happy that this thing's going to get going. It's going to be a quick spring, but uh, we'll have our opening day. When the lockout ended, how did everybody feel down there? Yeah, I mean, especially today was the first day for the for the Marlins on the field. So, you know, certainly, uh, you know, it's always very exciting to have the first day of spring training, but I think definitely had more meaning today, given the fact that not only had the players not really seen each other all that much over the last 90 days. But, you know, for somebody like myself in the media, I mean, I haven't been in a clubhouse or really been close to these guys in almost two years. So it was really cool, you know, to be back there for sure. Oh, I bet. You know, that was the one thing 
that that we thought of that luckily our group it's now changing in Oakland but our group had been pretty much the same group for years so whether we were on Zoom calls it everybody knew each other it wasn't that big of a deal but in the back of my mind I'm like what if you had a young team and you really didn't know guys and now all of a sudden they're on a computer you're on a computer like it just had to be a whole lot of disconnect and not easy to 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 do your job yeah, there definitely was a point last year where we were able to get a little bit closer toward the very end of the year where they were allowing us to go on the field and, and um, you know, and see some of the players. I mean, I think we're talking probably like August, September, but there were genuinely players on Miami's roster that I never met, you know, that I never was in front of either late 2020 or 2021. So, yeah, that's a dynamic that you really can't, you really can't quantify and for the media to do their job, do they really have to have that relationship with players? No, but for somebody like me who, who tries to break news and tries to, you know, get information on trades and signings. I mean, it's crucial to develop those relationships, both with the players and the organization. So uh, today felt as normal as it is, as it has since basically two years ago, almost to the day where everything shut down kind of close to go a week or so. You know, Derek Jeter is always going to be a big name in our game. He's one of the great players of all time. He's an absolute icon. Uh, from, from a fan base, I'm not sure. You know, some people just care about the players. Hey, tell me, is the team going to be good? Are they going to be competitive? An executive slash owner really doesn't matter to me. When, when, when Derek Jeter stepped away from the Marlins, huge deal with the fan base, or they only care what happens in between the lines? Well, you know, I, I think that that a lot of them are wondering what direction the team is going to go because Derek inevitably was the one who made final decisions on everything until the checks had to be signed by the ownership. So there's no question that, and as far as I understand, I mean, it definitely left the players confused and definitely left the executives confused because remember a lot of the executives were hired by Derek Jeter either four years ago, three years ago, two years ago, or more recently. So Everybody was sort of shocked uh, at, the, at, at the timing of it. But I, I do think in the end, after weeks go by, months go by, I think that all of the players and executives alike have to sort of wake up and understand that baseball, as you know, is a very fleeting gig and you can lose it pretty quickly if you don't win. So if these people want to keep their jobs and if they want to get future jobs, they have to execute the game plan that, that Jeter had going forward. And I, I think a lot of what he did is going to stay intact. I don't, I don't really see a deviation from the plan. The only question is, does Miami replace him at some point with someone else? And I, I think they have plans to, they just haven't done it yet. You know, it, it, it's kind of crazy because two years ago in the postseason, uh, the shortened COVID year, and then obviously last year just winning 67 games. But there is talent down there. So w when you look at the young talent and always trying to acquire more talent, how far away are the Marlins? Well, they made some moves in the offseason, and, and those moves, I think, were sort of supplementary to the moves that were made in the, at the deadline. They moved Adam Duvall, and they moved Starling Marte. Uh, they sort of replaced one of them, you could probably say, with Avisail Garcia, and so he pretty much fits the bill as, as a Duvall type to a degree, I would say. Hits home runs, plays good defense, and, and so they'll slot him in in right field. And then beyond that, they added Joey Wendell, who I think is going to fit probably either a regular role or a super utility role, but I do see him having a major impact on the team. 
And then they upgraded their catcher position by getting Jacob Stallings. So those names are not going to necessarily, uh, you know, get people all that excited and get people coming to the ballpark, but they're very capable big league players. The question is, uh, is the team right now, as it stands, better this year on paper than it was opening day last year on paper? And I'm not really sure that it is. So the question is, is that if the Marlins had this game plan going into the offseason, have they executed everything that they're going to do to this point? I don't think so. I think they still have another move or two in them. And then at that point, we could start looking at them as a potential, let's say, uh, you know, fifth seed or sixth seed in the National League as they've added now six teams to the pie. So, um, you know, progress is still being made. But, you know, do I, do I see this team being better than the Mets or the Braves right now? Uh, probably not. Right on par with the Phillies, maybe a little bit better than Washington. But let's see what they do in the next week or two. How'd you feel about the deal today where Matt, we sent Matt Olson, all-star first baseman, to the Atlanta Braves, essentially allowing the Braves to cut ties with Freddie Freeman. And we, we heard that he could be, you know, looking at L.A., looking at New York, or could go back to Atlanta. But now bringing in Olsen kind of pretty much uh, ends the fate of a franchise player who just won, won a World Series. What would you think of that move? Yeah, I mean, the A's, you guys, <laughs> the team you cover, making all of the, uh, the headlines today for sure. Um, look, I mean, I- inevitably, I know it's crazy to say, there's there's a pretty good chance that Matt Olson comes close or is even better than Freddie Freeman in terms of just straight production at that first base position for the Braves. I mean, I really do genuinely feel that way. But again, the intangible that somebody like Freddie Freeman has to a team, he's a franchise player, he's an icon there. You know what it is, is that sports is, is, is very fleeting. We tend to get caught up in these things. How can LeBron James ever leave Cleveland? You know, like how could Tom Brady ever leave New England? How could Freddie Freeman ever leave Atlanta? And then, you know, life goes on. How, how could Albert Pools ever leave St. Louis, right? And um, So I don't get caught up in these things anymore. I think Atlanta's still going to be very good. And I, and I think that it's a shame that they couldn't get something worked out, but the, the general manager of the Braves, Alex Anthopoulos, to me, is one of the very best in the business. He must have known that he had no chance to re-sign him, and so went to a plan B option, which could be honestly as good as plan A. You know, when you look at last year where the Mets for a good period of time led the NL East, and there then was that period where every single time you looked up, someone different was leading the division. Does that give the Marlins a lot of hope? Yeah, look, that's what happened last year. I mean, far be it for me to be able to predict this stuff because I thought the National League East may have been the best division in baseball last year, and it turned out to be arguably be the worst. But, my gosh, if the Mets are ever going to be good, is this the year? I feel like we've been saying that for five, (laughs) six, seven years. They are just so loaded. And then every year something happens. You know, their pitcher is partying, or their other pitcher has, like, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Like, the strangest things always have. Their second baseman gets popped for steroids. He's out of here. But I got to feel like Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom and Pete Alonzo and Starling Marte. I mean, they're just so stacked. I got to believe that the Mets are not going to just win 75 games this year. And I think the Braves are very good, too. The Phillies, uh, they haven't been able to get out of their own way because of their bullpen, and you saw they've made some bullpen moves over the last couple of days. So we went into last year thinking the National League East would be formidable. It was not. i got to believe that it will be more formidable this year than last year, and I just don't simply think that a team like the Braves could end up winning 
you know, 85, 86 games and winning the World Series. I do think that there will be some stiff competition in that division. All right. My producer, Cody, who has contacted you multiple times, has been dying sure. to know about one pitcher on the squad. At once was an electric mm-hmm. arm. Go ahead, Cody. Uh, Craig, what's the latest on Sixto Sanchez? Is there any update on what's going on with him? Cody, you must have you know, on a fantasy team or some baseball cards. That's the only thing that I can get here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the news is not good with Sixto Sanchez. Um, he's just, he's been hurt a lot. He's had conditioning issues. Uh, you know, there's some off the field stuff that they've been concerned with too. Today, the Marlins announced that they are shutting him down indefinitely. He's still you know, having issues from his past surgery last year. Uh, I, I mean, listen, there, there are a lot of positive things that I can say about the Marlins, but unfortunately he is just not going to be one of them at this point. Could he be a contributor this year? I suppose, but I would not be drafting him in any fantasy baseball leagues. And Cody, if you have any of his cards, you know, 30 cents on the dollar, say goodbye. Well, that's good to know because I've been trying to monitor what he's been doing because in 2020 he was so electric for the Marlins when they made the postseason and then seeing these you know, all these reports of, you know, his arm problems and stuff. And as someone that grew up in the Pittsburgh area, I'm hoping that he's not included in some trade for Brian Reynolds if that ever happens. Uh, yeah, I gotcha. No, I, I think I think that um, Ben Charrington is, is too sharp to, to do something like that. I mean, look, we've seen stories in baseball like this where a player is just constantly hurt and he's got some issues and, and then they like reappear years later. Uh, that's going to have to be, I think, the issue with Sixto Sanchez. Remember, he did not pitch all of 2021. And right now, I, I don't see any scenario where he's pitching in the first half of 2022. So maybe he reappears somewhere else. But it, it does look like, unfortunately, the Marlins made some really good trades that don't get talked about enough. But this one, where they traded JT Romito to Philadelphia for Sanchez and Alfaro, uh, right now doesn't look very good. You know, our guy, Jesus Cesardo. You know, he's somebody that we, you know, around here after he got traded over from the Nats thought that this guy is just going to be hell on wheels and he's going to be dominant and he's going to be an ace for a long, long time. Didn't happen. Obviously, we traded him down to South Florida and then, you know, from afar looking at the numbers, they weren't great. How do the Marlins view Jesus Cesardo going into this season? You know, it's interesting today at, at, at uh, you know, at, at training camp, at spring training, I got some really positive reviews on him. I know that the numbers in, in, his, in his Marlins tenure last year were really dismal. And he, he is the kind of pitcher, too, by the way, that's going to put guys on in the past. Like, and, and that's always going to be a problem in the big leagues, walking guys. But I guess he's been working hard in the offseason and – in, in some of these little mini camps that they've had where the Marlins players have faced the Marlins pitchers, some of the players have told me this is the best that he's looked. So we'll have to see. We've heard this before, no question. But every five days, Jesus Lizardo is going to start off in the rotation for the Marlins. I, I would guess that he's probably either their fourth or fifth starter. And then we'll just have to see what ends up happening with him this season. But no doubt, I mean, look, the, Miami traded Starling Marte for this guy. they got to make sure that they at least give him their best shot. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's an electric arm, and he's a hell of a kid. That's the thing. It's like, how do you not root for him? He's got, he's good looking. He's got a great personality. He could totally be a star. It's just the numbers haven't matched all that yet, but it's hard not to root for him because he's such good people. 
Yeah, he, he is extremely nice. He's a South Florida kid, so there's a lot of people that are rooting for him. Uh, you know, but in the end, you know, you, you don't. I mean, the thing is, is that nice guys. I mean, these are great stories, but Miami's on like essentially. You know, that 2020 season, it is true. They did make the playoffs. They did beat the Cubs. But you know, Miami doesn't really. The fans, they don't care about nice guys anymore. You know, they, they want to see a winning season. And whatever is required to get a winning season, they, they can bring in mean guys at this point. They don't care. <laughs> Craig, good stuff. We appreciate it. We'll be calling soon because uh, before you know it, the season's going to be starting, and that's music to all of our ears. Yeah, no doubt. Hang in there, A's fans. It'll turn again. It always does with the A's. No doubt. Take care. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, thanks for having me. One team that's gotten a lot of excitement here this offseason, the Mets. Anthony DeComo from MLB.com covers the Metropolitans. How good are the Mets going to be? Anthony, Chris Townsend here on A's Cast Live. It's great to have you back on the program. Hey, Chris. Happy to be on. You've got so many things going around this ball club, whether it's signings, it's trades, it's the owner, it's the Mets versus the Yankees, who's going to be the dominant team, who's going to get all the attention. What has the start of spring training been like for the New York Mets? Yeah, it's been decidedly un-Metsian, if that's a, uh, if that's a word. This is a team and this is a fan base that for very long was kind of used to being second fiddle and used to being on the outside looking in of a lot of conversations, whether that's you know, off-season acquisition conversations, or even even conversations from people like us talking about the best teams and the best franchises in baseball. Now, all of a sudden, you know, within the span of, of less than two years, you get a new owner in and, and you start spending and, and to such an extent that, you know, it's really making waves around the game. And it's a, it's a totally different conversation. I think it's, it's taken some getting used to for some people who have been around this team for a long time. But you're seeing it now early in spring, there's just a different buzz around the team. Uh, it's a it's a locker room that is very excited, but also very businesslike, knowing that this is a club that could potentially go all the year this go all the way this year or or challenge for us. So Steve Cohen has made a lot of changes in his time as owner, and uh, they're really manifesting themselves in a big way right now. Yeah, and he's got bravado, but of course he has a he's got bravado. He's a Wall Street hedge fund guy. You don't become worth. I mean, let's face it, Anthony, you, you're not worth $16 billion because you don't have a whole lot of bravado. It might be $17 billion too. It depends on <laughs> what estimate you use. But no, you're absolutely right. Look, this is a guy who, who very clearly isn't afraid to shake things up. And he's also very clearly, you know, just because you're worth $17 billion, it doesn't mean much for an major league franchise if you're not willing to spend it on the product. He's very clearly willing to spend it. He's very clearly willing to put a lot of money into the New York Mets and not just in the player payroll, but in all sorts of aspects of the organization to make this team better and to make them a consistent winner. So like I said, all of a sudden you've got this, this franchise that for years, for decades, for 
you know, let's be honest, the majority of its existence has been the punchline of a lot of jokes. And now all of a sudden, people are seeing them in a totally different light. This is a team that, uh, you know, since Steve Cohen came on, we've talked about the Mets wanting to be the Dodgers of the East. And uh, they're certainly trending in that direction with some of the things that they're doing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Billy Bean has great stories about coming up with that Mets group that would eventually win a World Series. I was in high school at the time. There was that run in the early 2000s with Piazza, and they get to the World Series but lose. But, yeah, uh, there was that uh, bracket that they did about the Mets and all the funny different bad stuff that happened to the Mets. I thought that was hilarious, but it's now time to turn it around, and I think of – DeGrom and his contract and, and opting out and the future of him uh, obviously has the ability to be an all-time great. What do you think happens with him? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and he's the great X factor of this team, Jacob DeGrom is, because his range of outcomes could be anything from a similar season to what we saw last year, in which case you start to get really worried about his long-term future and, and what it could look like. And, you know, or the other end of that spectrum is Jacob DeGrom simply going back to what he was before last year, becoming once again one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball because his performance when healthy has never really been in question. So, uh, you know, for all the Mets did and for all the Mets added to their roster and, and changed their roster and changed, you know, the coaching staff, ownership, everything on down, it's still a team that revolves around Jacob DeGrom. He's still the best player on, on the roster. He's still the best player on the field every time he takes the field. And they're going to have a tough time winning without him at his best. But conversely, if he is at his best, watch out because then suddenly this becomes a team that can make a deep run into October. What do you think Max Scherzer brings to the clubhouse from a standpoint of who Max Scherzer is in our industry? How does that work and what does he do for the Mets? And I'm just not talking about as a pitcher, he, but as as the dude, what does he bring? Yeah, I totally understand. I think, um, you know, I think he brings a lot. I think it's, it's obvious in terms of his leadership qualities, um, his competitiveness. This is a guy who knows what it takes to win, who knows how to win a World Series, who's won a World Series, um, is as well-respected as really any player in the game. And he's coming into a clubhouse that had its issues last year. And really has maybe kind of had a leadership void uh, over the past few seasons, uh, probably going back as far as to when David Wright retired after the 2018 season. Um, th- there's, there's been a little, bit, a little bit of a leadership void around here. And, and I think Mets officials have acknowledged that. They understand that. And it's not just Max Scherzer. They brought in Scherzer as, as, as one of the biggest pieces both on and off the field for this. But they brought in a lot of high-quality, high-character guys, guys with reputations of being good clubhouse guys, um, you know, whether that's Mark Canna, whether that's Eduardo Escobar, uh, you know, Chris Bassett from the A's would fall into that group as well. So they brought in a lot of these pieces uh, that they're hoping, yes, will be good players on the field, but off the field can maybe help correct some of these issues. And, and again, the ultimate goal here is to take the Mets to a place where they're no longer that punchline of jokes and, and winning will do that. But guys like Max Scherzer can help do that too, just just from their presence alone. When you talk about a resume of a World Series champion, a Gold Glover, a eight-time All-Star, a five-time Silver Slug Award winner, an All-Star Game MVP, and, and at the position at second base, you start thinking. You look at that resume and you go, "Oh, that guy's going to be a Hall of Famer." 
And my producer and I were talking about, you know, bringing you on today. And we we're going to, what we we're going to talk about is like, yeah, don't forget Robinson Cano's back. And it's like, oh my God, I totally forgot about him. I mean, the multiple suspensions. I mean, the numbers are there, but you got, you now got two years left at 24 million per. I know the Mariners are picking up probably close to around 4 million of that, but, uh, I totally forgot about Robbie Cano. What's it going to be like him coming back? Do they just eventually pay him off? How do you think this works out? Well, it's going to depend a lot upon what Cano produces. Uh, you know, the Mets organization made a decision to bring Robbie Cano back. He, he was under guaranteed contract. That didn't mean that they had to bring him into the clubhouse. They could have just said, here, we'll pay you your money and, and go away. But they didn't do that. They, they thought, um, A, that Cano could come back in a professional way and, you know, be a veteran, positive influence in the ways that he can in the clubhouse. And, and B, they, they frankly still felt that there was some life in that bat. I mean, like you said, uh, you know, Cano probably won't ever get into the Hall of Fame because of his two PED suspensions. Uh, but if you look at the numbers alone and take that out of the equation, he is a borderline Hall of Famer, if not already on the inside, um, you know, looking out. So there's certainly hope within the organization that even in his late 30s now, you know, Cano can still be a source of offense. He could come off the bench. He can DH. He can play a little bit of second base, um, you know, and they hope get some big hits for them over the course of the season. But, you know, as, as you kind of intimated, if that's not the case and he's just kind of cooked and he's not able to produce anything, then I, I think that conversation will come up very quickly of why is this guy still here and do we just cut bait? You know, a good friend of our program, Sandy Alderson, uh, was throw you know was a part of some rumors that had to do with the A's and obviously it was not about players it was about Billy Bean it was about Bob Melvin and you know changing the culture of the New York Mets and ultimately Bean stayed here Melvin ended up in San Diego and Buck Showalter who all the respect in the world and whenever you interview him you know you're dealing with a really really bright guy uh, when it talks about you talk about building organizations he helped build the Yankees back in the day he helped build the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, end up getting the Orioles into the postseason how do you think the fit is going to be with Buck and the New York Mets yeah I think it's a good fit I think um, you know I think New York is such a different animal in terms of the responsibilities particularly the media responsibilities um, and I think bringing in another guy who had not previously done the job, um, you know, maybe someone who's, who's young and bright and, 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 and looks the part and can do all those things. You know, typically, uh, you know, I advocate for those guys, guys who are not necessarily the quote-unquote retreads, guys who you don't know quite what you're going to get. But I think with this particular veteran team, win now in this market, um, with everything that comes along with that, I think they needed a guy who is exactly like Buck Showalter. They needed someone who had done it before here, um, who had had some success throughout his career, and who knows what it takes. You're seeing it now in the early days of spring training. I mean, there's just such an ease about Buckshell Walter. Uh, he's comfortable. He's in his elements, um, you know, dealing with us in the media as well as dealing with players. He, he's got a ton of energy. I've seen him out on the backfield, you know, just kind of going around and orchestrating workouts in, in ways that, frankly, I haven't seen from other managers who have come through here. I mean, he's got his hands in everything and he's not really 
you know, delegating certain aspects of it to his coaches. He wants to be involved in every little bit of it. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people around here of high hopes for Buck Showalter and what he can do for the team. And, um, yeah, I, I think in this particular case, the veteran savvy manager is exactly what they needed. You know, I'm not totally up on all my New York sports, but I know for the most part, uh, the Nets are all right. The Rangers are doing okay. The Devils stink. The Knicks stink. Uh, obviously the Giants and the Jets stink. I got to think New York coming out of hibernation of the winter can't wait for baseball, right? And, and a and a and a uh, media war, I guess you would say, between the Yankees and the Mets. That could be a lot of fun this summer. Absolutely, I think there's, there's a lot of hand wringing on the other side of town right now, just because the Yankees haven't been quite as active as the Mets have been in, in free agency and. And, uh, you know, they did spring, obviously, that big Gary Sanchez trade. But I think there's a lot more optimism in general around the Mets than there is around the Yankees right now, which is a pretty – which is something that I guess uh, those of us in New York are not used to. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you talk about New York sports – you know, frankly, the New York sports team, professional sports team, just ha- hasn't been all that fruitful for fans over the last decade or longer. Um, they haven't had a ton of consistent winners in this town outside of the Yankees who, you know, measure their, their success in world series and haven't had one of those since 2009. So um, the point is this: I think there's a buzz around the Mets, as I mentioned earlier, people are excited about what this team can do. And there have been points throughout history, whether it's 1986 or um, really even like 2006, 2015, when the Mets kind of spike up and maybe even for temporary periods of time past the Yankees in terms of, fan interest in terms of engagement, in terms of capturing people's imaginations. And this is a big opportunity right now in 2022 for, for this Mets franchise to do the same thing again. Let's end on this because I'm thinking about last year and the Mets pretty much led the division for a good part of the season. And then it just became like every other day you looked at the standings and it's the Phillies are in first place. And then now it's the Braves and it's back to being the Mets. And it's not like the Braves had this incredible 105 win season and then won the world series. I mean, they won what, like 88 games. Uh, when you, when you handicap this division, now Freeman's gone, but our own Matt Olson is in there. He's a terrific player, going to hit a ton of bombs and he's phenomenal defensively. Uh, I know Philly is still looking to add at this point. Uh, if you had to handicap this division, how do you see the National League East? Yeah, I think I think the Mets are the most complete team. Um, certainly, that's not taking anything away from from the defending World Series champions, but you know they lose a little something without Freddie Freeman. And, and no disrespect to Matt Olson there, but Freddie Freeman was an all-time player for that franchise, and and they're going to miss him. Um, they do still have great pitching. The Phillies have done a lot to fortify their offense. So uh, it's not as if the Mets are going to steamroll this division. I don't see that by any means. But I do think when you look at the weaknesses of those top three teams in the NL East, uh, the Mets are, are the club that doesn't really have an obvious one. Their offense is pretty good. The rotation has you know potential to be one of the best in the game. They've added some bullpen pieces. So uh, you know they've, their defense has gotten a lot better over the last two, three years. So there's not a ton not to like about this Mets roster. It's not a perfect roster. There are definitely some big-time injury risks, particularly in the rotation, but um, there also isn't a perfect team in the NL East. And, and uh, you know, the closest we've got to a perfect team in baseball is probably way out on the other coast in Los Angeles. So 
If you're handicapping the division, uh, you know, I think it's hard to put the Mets anywhere but tentatively at the top, and then we'll see how these first couple months of the year go in terms of who can stay healthy and um, you know, who can really make a run. But I think it's the Mets, the Braves, the Phillies, probably in that order in terms of uh, what you're looking at of, of the three competitors in the NL East. Well, you know you're going good when you say, yeah, the guy's worth $16 billion. You go, ah, eh, if you look at it closer, it may be 17 <laughs> <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good problem to have is, uh, you know, worrying about that sort of accounting. Hey, great stuff. We're going to be reading you, and we're going to be watching because the, uh, the Battle of New York and the AL East is going to be very, very interesting, as in you're going to love Chris Bassett. He's a salt-of-the-earth guy. Uh, Mark Canna, once you get to know him, he's a foodie. He's a really good guy. And then Starling, God, Starling kind of reminded us of Ricky Henderson down the stretch last year. So you've got some former A's there that we're going to be paying attention to. So uh, enjoy this year, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's hope for a fun fun season. No doubt. Anthony DeComo of MLB.com. Well, a team that's making a splash is the Philadelphia Phillies. But will it be enough? Alex Coffey used to cover the athletics. Now she's covering the Phils for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Alex, I'm like, (laughs) I'm seeing your name. I'm like, I'm so used to San Jose Mercury News. You know, what's that? When, when did you make the change? And congratulations. Thank you. And it was actually the athletic. Um, so San Jose, right. I don't know who was running for San Jose Mercury News. But um, I made the change in the at the end of January. Um, so started covering the team <laughs> in the midst of the lockout, which was a little bit of a um, weird situation. But, um, but, yeah, it's been really great. It's obviously really different. The teams are really different, you know front offices operate differently um but it's been good i'm just trying to you know hit the ground running so well obviously everybody is different from the oakland a's and that's one of the reasons why (laughs) one of the reasons we love this team is that it is so different from everybody else it's like a um it's like a it's like a business. It's like a family business that's been run a certain way for a long, long time, and it's very small and intimate. And then you get to a team in the Northeast, and the Phillies are a big time uh, organization, no question about it. It Philly is known to be the hard, most hardcore fan base. Whether you're talking NFL, NBA, NHL, baseball. So, in your brief time in Philly. What's it been like with the Phillies and their fan base? It's been interesting. Um, I will say that they're never satisfied. Um, <laughs> they just they just signed Kyle Schwarber. They yeah. just signed Nick Castellanos. And the response, I got a ton of emails being like, well, why didn't they sign Chris Bryant? <laughs> and, you know, they got both of those guys for the same price that they could have gotten uh, Bryant at. So, um, so I think that that kind of embodies embodies the fan base pretty well <laughs> well and I and I gotta think that Philly fans are pretty hungry because you signed Bryce Harper that was a big deal um last year 
you know, if it wasn't for a just horrific bullpen, their bullpen has just been a dumpster fire. There were times they were in first place last year, and I know the and and I think the Mets feel the same way because the Mets were in first place for the majority, and then it was like the Mets and Phillies were flip flopping for the NL East, and before uh-huh. you know it, at the end of the year, the Braves took off and eventually won the World Series title. But I got to think at just being a couple games over five hundred, knowing that the bullpen was so bad that. The Phillies have to say to themselves, hey, wait a minute, why not us this year? Yeah, especially given how much they were spending. You know, they went right underneath the luxury tax threshold last year. So to not make the postseason was especially, I mean, I wasn't here, but from what I've heard, it was a big blow. So um, so that is definitely what they have their sights set on in 2022. And I think the reason that you see them going over the threshold and signing guys like Castellanos and Schwarber and, you know, going to be a lethal uh, lineup that they've got there now the big question when i saw those two guys sign is all right the dh in the national league <laughs> is definitely going to help but i ain't neither of these guys are not even adequate defenders these guys are both bad defenders how do you make that work <laughs> That's a great question. I don't think any of us know. Um, I think that at this rate, they probably need like five DHs. You know, like one DH is not gonna <laughs> is not gonna cut it um, if they want to pull some more defenders off the field. You know, um, but um, but yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see. I mean, you're right. I mean, statistically, these guys are not you know like negative DRS. I don't know exactly what um, what their what their rankings are per fan graphs, but it's it's pretty low. So, and the infield defense too, you know, they struggle with that. Um, so I think that the tentative strategy right now is to try to out hit the defense. And I'm not sure if that's really possible, but I guess we'll, we'll see. We'll find out this season. Yeah. And maybe they can petition baseball to have two DHs. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> what now we saw Familia, we saw Hand. I mean, obviously there's things that they have to do to shore up that bullpen because the bullpen at times the last couple years has, and, and I'm not trying to be mean, but it's been historically bad. No, it, it literally has. Yeah, no, that's not like a phrase that you're throwing out there. It literally has been historically bad. Um, they also added Corey Cable before the lockout and he's looked great in spring training. If he can stay healthy, um, he's touching 96 already, uh, you know, is adding a new, he won't tell me what pitch it is, but he calls it a mystery pitch to his, um, <laughs> his arsenal. Uh, so I think that he could be a really great addition for them too, um, you know, as closer, but, but yeah, you'll, we'll see. I mean, um, I think that as far as the bullpen goes, Knebel was really the impact signing you know um, I'm not really sure Familia is kind of like a ground ball pitcher so with this infield defense I'm not really sure if that's going to be the the best combination but I guess we can see how that how that plays out I love the mystery pitch yeah no I was really I was pushing him on it I was like you can't just you just tell me he's off speed you know any hints and he's like no you'll just see it in the spring training game one day so I've been keeping an eye out uh haven't seen it yet but you know We'll see. I can't wait for her to go on Baseball Savant. And what kind of pitch is it? It's a mystery pitch, but this is what it does. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, it's anyone's guess right now. But, um, but, you know, that'll only make him more 
more dangerous, especially when he's got below where it is right now. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll see how that uh, plays out. Now, Herrera has been a mercurial kind of guy uh, for the Phillies, where super talented, but there's issues. What are they going to do about center field? Um, he actually, quote, tweaked something in his side, quote, um, a couple of days ago. So we don't – they're doing an MRI on him. We haven't heard what his status is yet, but um, – but Girardi said that the competition for center is pretty open right now. Um, and they have a guy that's actually kind of like a Chad Pender-esque guy here. His name is Matt Veerling, and he's a utility guy um, and plays some center. You know, he's pretty speedy, so he could see some playing time. He doesn't have a ton of big league experience, but, um, you know, all the guys that would back up Pereira don't have a lot of big league experience. So, uh you know, I think that he's probably their top candidate if he if Carrera is out for a little bit, a little while. Now, how much was the rumors about Trevor's story uh, being on the radar for the Phillies? You got D.D. Gregorius at shortstop. Uh, where were you on the rumors of Trevor's story? You know, I mean, granted, take it with a grain of salt because I'm new to the piece, but I was asking around about it, and I didn't really hear much you know, as many rumblings as I heard about Schwarber, Castellanos. So, um, so I don't know. I, uh, maybe I'm just misinformed, but I, I wasn't really hearing much. Yeah, it, it, it's so that, – that was so, you know, listening to different people talk about that and, like, so many organizations supposedly were in, but they're just – you know, that ended up being a weird deal that he just ended up in Boston on a contract that obviously was way lower than anybody thought. Um, mm-hmm. And I think just this, 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 from the when the lockout ended to where we'll be on opening day, how it all went down. I mean, even the Carlos Correa deal was strange. Just a lot of strange things about how they've gone about the business. How do you like the starting pitching for the Phillies, starting with obviously Zach Wheeler? Yeah, I mean, Wheeler's phenomenal, and he's a total workhorse. You know, I think he threw something in the neighborhood of 200, I want to say it was like 213 innings um, <laughs> last year and was still a sec- you know, runner-up for Cy Young. So he, you know, regardless of what their lineup looks like, he, I really think that he's the key to their success, you know, and, and they define success as reaching the postseason this, this year. So um, he's obviously really important and is – a little bit delayed um you know we'll see if he's going to be able to start the first week of the season but he um he had the flu and missed a couple days so um, a little bit delayed ranger suarez is great he exceeded a lot of his expectations um last year he's a young guy but doesn't doesn't really pitch like a young you know he's kind of got like a good mix of like um like carefree attitude but also maturity that he brings to the mound. Um, and I think that they probably want to look for a bounce back from Aaron Nola for for this year. Um, you know, I think that if those if those three perform the way that they want them to, they'll, they'll be in good shape. Um, but yeah, a couple of I guess a couple of question marks. Well, other than I mean, other than Kyle Gibson, they've got pretty much a young staff, which you got to be positive about. Yeah. Yeah, no, they do. Um, and I think having Gibson there, like having that veteran presence there is a good thing for them. But they don't, you know, it's not like 
you know, they don't, they don't really have a, a really deep farm system that they can lean on pitching wise, um, you know, after their first five guys. So it's, you know, there's not a lot of depth there. So I think, you know, those guys like Wheeler staying healthy, you know, Nola bounce back like that, that stuff is especially important for them. All right, so I want you to handicap the division for me. Where do you got the Phillies, and how do you think the East plays out? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to put something on the record. Um, it's going to be really hard to predict. Um, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Nationals will be last. Um, maybe Marlins fourth. Um but the Marlins actually have really good pitching, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like people kind of underrate them a little bit. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I still think that, you know, it'll be Braves first and Mets or Phillies second or third. I don't really know. I haven't really seen enough to know how that'll be ordered yet. All right, before we let you go, I have actually done this challenge, and it's a big Philadelphia challenge. How are you on rating cheesesteaks? Oh, I'm terrible. I haven't even had a cheesesteak since I've been here. All right. Well, on the, the so there's this corner that's got Geno's and it's got Pat's. And they've been battling for years uh, as the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. There's people there they'll tell you, oh, there's way better. But what a, I have actually done it. <laughs> I have I have had a cheesesteak at both. I, I I can't tell you how full I felt after having two two cheesesteaks, but it, it, <laughs> I I like Geno's better than Pat's, and mm. I know I've told people that. And if you're a Pat's fan, you think like you're the worst human being for liking Geno's, but you're you're gonna have to do that challenge of which one you like better. You have to do that living in Philadelphia. I will let you know. I will let you know, and I will report back. Well, congratulations on the new gig, and we will be checking in with you. Be well and be safe. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a good one. Take care. And last but not least, we love having him on the program. You've seen him on nationally. He's one of the best TV guys in the business from the famed Carey baseball family. Here is Chip Carey. Chip, are you there? Hey, I'm here. How are you guys? Great, great. We were just talking about, you know, you start to feel old when you're like, Matt Ryan got traded to the Colts. You're like, God, he's been in the league for 14 years, and then Freddie Freeman's now not there. You guys got a lot going on in Atlanta. Yeah, as long as they don't trade me, I'm in good shape. It's okay. We'll we'll get through this together. Well, <laughs> but, you uh, you yeah, you can't a- trade a carry. The Carry family is too strong. They can't. You guys are the uh, franchise. Uh, well, thank you, but uh, no, it's been an eventful couple of weeks in Atlanta. But uh, look, the Falcons need to rebuild. Braves went through their rebuild about six years ago, and we'll see where it takes them ahead. You know, we talk, you know, our fan base longs for a franchise player because they've never had one. I mean, going back to when the A's got here in 68 and had great success, winning three straight World Series, and later on came the Tony La Russa uh, A's that won a World Series and went th- and, and, and went to three straight. But no guy has ever just said, I'm sticking my flagpole here and stayed here their entire career. So, 
A's fans have always looked for that guy. And I think about for Braves fans, I mean, you had that guy with Chipper Jones. Uh, now, obviously, with the franchise, think about someone like Hank Aaron, where no matter where the Braves were, he is Mr. Brave. But when you think about Freddie Freeman leaving, how tough was that for for the fans? You just won the World Series, and now your guy's a Dodger. Well, I guess you have to look at it uh, with Freddie Freeman two different ways. Uh, one, you look at the player. Uh, MVP, uh, won a World Series champion, Gold Glove Award winner, face of the franchise, as you said, a guy that had been with the organization for 12 years. Uh, you know, that part of it's hard. You know, it's hard to lose a player of that caliber. Uh, but the Braves are getting a really good player in return. And I think yeah. the, the unknown factor for our fan base is we don't see the Oakland A's very much on the East Coast. So uh, fans know that uh, Matt Olson's from Parkview. They know he's an Atlanta kid. They know he's put up big numbers. He's also younger and less expensive, and the economics of this deal are a big part of it from the Braves' perspective as well. Uh, then you take the other side of that argument, which is the human being. Freddie Freeman's a great guy, great husband, great father, super in the community, unbelievably good and patient with the media, as we said, kind of like Chipper Jones and Dale Murphy and Tom Glavin, a uh, very vocal face and voice of the franchise, and you're going to miss that. Certainly we will in the media. But as you know, the essence of our game is adapting to change because Chipper Jones doesn't play for the Braves anymore. Greg Maddox, Dale Murphy, Hank Aaron, John Schuholtz isn't the GM. Bobby Cox is no longer managing the team. If you can't accept change and the time marches on with or without your favorite players, you're going to be disappointed every year. So, uh, you know, we're going to be sorry Freddie's gone. We're sorry that he and the Braves couldn't come to terms. But Alex Anthopoulos did what he had to do and did it in a very effective and great way for the Braves currently and in the future. And we wish Freddie all the best, except for the six games he plays the Braves in the regular season, of course. Yeah, we feel the same way about Matt Olson. You're getting a hell of a guy, and he's the one player that I said if I had to pick an A to win an MVP coming up here in the next few years, I didn't pick Marcus Simeon. I didn't pick Matt Chapman. I picked Matt Olson because not only does he have just incredible power, obviously we saw what he did hitting against left-handed pitching last year for power, but uh, what he is defensively, he and, and that's one thing I think you guys are going to notice, how special he is at picking the baseball, at throwing the baseball. He really, and running the bases, you guys are getting an all-around player who I agree with, younger, cheaper, but, man, I think he's about to explode on the national scene, and he's going to do it as an Atlanta Brave. With a defending World Series champion team that's getting Marcelo Zuna back after he missed almost all of last year and Ronald Acuna Jr. back after missing half the season. So coming to Atlanta, all those accolades you uh, uh, presented for Matt are things that if he just does that with the team around him, he's not going to have to be the guy, uh, which I, I would assume, again, not watching the A's an awful lot last year, you know, he was kind of a guy that you put an X on him, and if you work around him, you got a pretty good chance to neutralize that team offensively. That's not going to be the case for him in Atlanta. If he has a bad day, he's got five or six guys in a really deep, good lineup that can pick up the slack. So uh, all those points you made are valid. We can't wait to see him. He's had a good start to spring training in his brief time with the Braves so far. And uh, I think very quickly our fans in Atlanta are going to fall in love with a local kid who, if he just comes in and does what he's capable of doing, I think he and the Braves will be uh, just fine. And how about the just terrific, sneaky move of Kenley Jansen for one year coming in for your bullpen? 
Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. The Braves already had a very good bullpen. Uh, I think that's because they have some questions at the back of the rotation. Charlie Morton looks to be on track to start the season in rotation. Max Fried is going to be in rotation. Ian Anderson is going to be in rotation with a caveat. He had some shoulder issues last year that were uh, part of his cautionary tale. Then you've got a fight at the back of the rotation with guys like Kyle Muller and Kyle Wright and Tuki Toussaint and others looking for the fourth and fifth job. But because of that uncertainty, you better have a deep and strong bullpen. And it's a bullpen that uh, you don't have to worry about lefty-righty splits. They get both sides out pretty equally well. Will Smith said he's cool being a setup guy. He said, quote, if it leads to another World Series and I'm not closing games, I'm fine with that. Uh, so, yeah, getting Kenley Jansen, who is the most accomplished closer of his generation, is a, a great coup on a one-year deal. He dreamed of playing for the Braves as a kid growing up in Curacao, knows Ozzie Albies, grew up watching the Braves on the Superstation and Andrew Jones, and he's excited to uh, to be in Braves uh, colors, and we're excited to see him do his thing with that cutter-slider combination in the ninth inning in Atlanta. You know, one of the fascinating things about this season will be how National League teams really utilize their DH, and there's a lot of ways to go about it. You can have one guy who's your primary DH. You can use it as a kind of like an off day for certain guys to get some at-bats. Or if you got someone hurt like Acuna who's coming back, maybe he's not ready to play in the outfield. But, man, at least at some point early on, stick him as DH to get that back into the lineup. So uh, how's Acuna doing, and, and what do you see his role as uh, early on in the season? Well, I think that depends on what the trainers say. Ronald's been hitting bombs in, in batting practice, but I'm sure they're going to bring him close, uh, bring him back somewhat slowly after the ACL tear because, as you said, they can't risk losing him again. Uh, but, you know, in the National League, you know, it's going to be a different game. You know, the old saying, oh, if you have the DH in the National League, that's going to be a big payday for a lot of guys making nine, ten, twelve, fifteen million dollars. That's not the case anymore. I think. With the Braves, you're going to see those at-bats spread around. As you said, Olsen could DH, Ozuna could DH, Acuna could DH to start the year. If you want to get Austin Riley off his feet, you can keep his bat in the lineup and get him away from third base. I think that that's going to be a really, really good thing for National League players who aren't used to that. And, of course, some guys do the DH job well, some hate it. But my take on it was, as a National League traditionalist, I hated the DH. But watching Mike fulton try to hit convinced me that we <laughs> desperately need it in the National League. And thankfully, it's here. So I think you're going to see those at-bats spread around with a multitude of guys in Atlanta. And Brian Stricker will be able to play the hot hand, knowing he's going to have five or six bench bats at his disposal on any given day. Yeah, I, you know, they were talking about Max Scherzer and no DH. And you're like, Max Scherzer was like, 0 for 59 last year, and do I need to see him bun off his face again in practice? Well, all I know is this. Max Scherzer beat the Braves a couple of years ago with an infield base hit uh, while he was playing with the Washington Nationals. So any pitcher that does that, I say get a regular player in there so they can strike out and try to launch the <laughs> ball out of the ballpark. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a fan of, of the uh, three-outcome style of game, but that's what we've got. And if there's more offense and there's a chance for more action as opposed to watching pitchers try to hit, I think uh, you've got to adapt or die, and I applaud the baseball's moved in that direction. So the division is interesting. Obviously, with the Mets going to be spending some money and, and that they're going for it, uh, looking at the Philly signings. So how do you kind of handicap the National League East right now? 
Well, the Braves are the team to beat because they've won the division the last four years and they've got a World Series ring that they'll be getting in a couple of weeks. So that's number one. But number two, uh, the Mets are going to be very good. If DeGrom is healthy, any team that has Jacob DeGrom is a big threat. Uh, you had Scherzer, you had Taiwan Walker. Those guys are really, really accomplished pitchers. Uh, you know, they've upgraded things in New York. Buck Showalter's going to bring an edge and try to, uh, shall we say, reinvent the culture in Mets colors. He's a terrific tactical manager. He's a no-nonsense guy who's going to straighten out some things there. That's number two. And number three, the Philadelphia Phillies. They've got Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. That's really good. They're going to have a really good offensive ball club. I don't know if they're going to be able to catch a cold or not, but I think Dave Dombrowski's betting on the fact that that group of one through nine offensively is going to drive in more than they're going to let in. We'll see if that's the case. But as of now, it looks like it's going to be a three-team race in the East. The Marlins, with a really good pitching staff, aren't ready for prime time yet. And I'm not sure that the Washington Nationals have put enough around Juan Soto for them to really be a consideration in the race. But I do know this, as evenly matched as the Braves and the Phillies and the Mets appear to be, the path to the division historically has been you've got to beat the weak sisters in the East if you're going to win it. That means when you play the Marlins, you better have a good year against them. And if the Nationals are down, you'd better have a good year against them. Because if you don't, one of those other clubs is going to, and you'll be ending up looking up at them when it comes to uh, time to hand out a division title. You know, repeating is just something we haven't seen a whole heck of a lot. The Giants had their interesting run of win, not win, win, not win, win. But really, you got to go back to, I guess, the Yankees last time we saw a repeat. Yeah, 21 years. Like, years. Why do you think, and, and what do you think about that challenge for the Braves? Is there now, it's now their opportunity. Well, because I think that's the great beauty of baseball. Any team can beat any other team on any given day. Look, the Baltimore Orioles can throw John Means at you, and he can give you a hell of a performance, and they can beat you. Uh, you know, uh, they've got some talent on that club, even though they uh, really struggled in the second division last year. If you run into them at the wrong time, you know, they can put a dent in your season. Um, I think that's what makes our sport so, so much fun. It's not like watching the 16 seed play the number one in the NCAA tournament where 96% of the time the number one team wins. That's not baseball. There are too many games and too many variables. And that's uh, the same as uh, when it comes to our sport, especially at the trading deadline. Look, last year, nobody gave the Braves a chance to do much of anything, much less win the division of the World Series. But Alex Anthopoulos went out, got Eddie Rosario off the scrap heap. He got Jorge Soler from Kansas City. He wasn't being utilized there. Made a couple of moves in the bullpen, and all of a sudden the Braves won, played 667 baseball over the last two months, got hot, beat the Brewers on the Freeman home run against Josh Hader, and never looked back. That's the magic of baseball. That's why it's so hard, because the Braves entered the playoffs last year with the fewest number of wins of any playoff uh, uh, team that made it, yet they were the ones that won the last game they played. And that's what we love about it. That's what makes it so fun, and that's why we all can't wait to get started on April the 7th. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you say one of the key things, and we'll end on this, one of the key things about the Atlanta Braves is a lot of shrewd moves. And it may not always be something that the fan base loves or the media loves, but, you know, you got to make some tough moves uh, depending on, obviously, how much you want to spend or what you want to do with players. But shrewd moves work in this game, and the Braves have been very good at that. They have been. Alex Anthopoulos and his staff do a terrific job, and that's why general managers get paid what they are paid. We can second-guess them all they want, but they're the people that have been given the keys to the organization, and you have to entrust that they are going to do what they think is best for the organization. Over time, it may be proven wrong, but they have to operate that way, and Alex does that. 
they are paid a lot of money to make very difficult decisions like the one Alex made a couple of weeks ago with Freddie Freeman. That wasn't easy on any level, but ultimately he had the, shall we say, stones to do what he thought was right and let a franchise icon walk out the door, but in the next breath was able to replace him and not only replace him, strengthen the ball club in his absence. That's not easy to do in this day and age, and I think Alex Anthopoulos deserves a ton of credit for being able to pull that off. Well, we really enjoyed the run last year with the Braves. Obviously, some former A's around there that came on this program. Walt Weiss was coming on, our good friend Ron Washington, and it, we, we had a lot of fun, and now we'll be rooting for Matt Olson too. So we'll be uh, we'll be rooting for you guys. And by the way, the Carey franchise, you can't trade a Carey. That's not possible. <laughs> well, you know, my grandfather was an Oakland A broadcaster yes? for one year. I don't think he liked the color Kelly green. I think he was colorblind. So that might've cost him with Charlie Finley. So then he went on his way to the white Sox. but uh, you guys have a, a good thing going. Mark Kotze, former brave, your manager. He's a great human being, wonderful family. And I think he's going to be a great success for you. And, we wish the A's all the best, except, of course, when we play you guys later on this summer. Well, enjoy the rest of spring training and the start of the year, and let's talk soon. I would look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. The great Chip Carey from the Carey family. His dad, longtime broadcaster for the Braves. Obviously, Harry, his grandfather, was the man. Well, Dave Jagler, Craig Mish, Anthony DeComo, Alex Coffey, and the great Chip Carey all covering the NL East. Well, that'll do it for A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.